You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Those of you who are here and those of you who are watching online, so good to be with you. My name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here at the Crossing Church. And if you're a guest or this is your first time tuning in, then on behalf of the pastors and members, I want to especially welcome you. And if you're watching online and you're a guest or you're new or you kind of feel new, um, you should see us right about now dropping a connect link there in the um, comments section of whatever platform you're watching on. Just want to encourage you to click that. Take a second to fill it out. Give us a little bit of information about yourself and your family. Or if you're a guest or you're new or you feel new and you're here in this room, you can reach right behind you in the pocket on the back of your chair. You can pull out a Connect card, fill that out, drop it off in the offering basket on your way out. It's just a way for us to um, know that you're here. Your presence here matters to us. And it's a way for us to know how to pray for you and love you and serve you to the best of our ability. Um, so good to be with you today. Uh, all that being said, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, as we are continuing in our series through the Sermon on the Mount, which is a collection of teachings from Jesus, where Jesus is just unpacking for us what it means to be human. And he's given us God's vision for human flourishing. And uh, today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, looking at verses 16 through 18. And as always, uh, if you have the YouVersion Bible app on your phone, you can get all the notes from today's teaching. You can follow along if you'd like. You can save those to your phone. And uh, before we dive into this text, I just want to invite you to go with me to the Father in prayer. Let's just pray one more time and just kind of align our hearts with God's and ask for his blessing on everything that we do here this morning. So would you join me and let's pray together. So Father, um, love Andy's prayer, my sister. I agree with her prayer, and I pray along with her that you would come and fill this place. I realize that you're here. The reality is we cannot escape your presence. Those watching from home or from wherever, uh, they cannot escape your presence. I cannot escape your presence, and, um, and yet uh, it seems like we do everything in our power to try to do just that. And so um, we welcome you. You're a person who wants to be invited, and we welcome you, and we pray that this morning you would truly as Paul prayed, open the eyes of our hearts to see what it is that our soul is really craving. Um, Bring us into a saving, satisfying experience and relationship with the real Jesus. Break through strongholds, lies, distractions. Come and do your work for the sake of your glory, for the sake of your kingdom. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you're a parent, uh, you're probably familiar with that common struggle of trying to get your kids to eat just whatever it is that you put in front of them. Uh, Thankfully, my two oldest kids have pretty much come through that stage, but my youngest daughter is still playing that game really hard. Uh, She does that to my wife on the reg, uh, and she did it to me just recently. So uh, a couple weeks ago, I barbecued. I think we have maybe a picture of it. Uh, If we can put that, yeah, okay. So let me tell you what you're looking at here. Uh, Yeah. You would be in. Uh, that's, some, that's some pulled pork that I hickory smoked low and slow for about 15 hours. You can't really see. The actual glory on that plate is the coleslaw that's in front of you. That's a uh, homemade coleslaw my wife made. It's a Central Texas style, kind of tangy, peppery, change your life. Who doesn't love French fries, right? 
Um, on the back there, some sweet and spicy pickles, and then that's a couple of different of my favorite local barbecue sauces from Kansas City. All together, uh, from like the brining and all the prep work, this meal took about 40 hours of working and waiting to put it on the plate. Uh, set it in front of my youngest daughter, Georgie, and she takes one look at it and delivers her classic line, which is, disgusting. Uh, and I'm like, first of all, you didn't say the word correctly. Second of all, moron, which I don't actually say, I think, I think it, right, before you judge me. Uh, this is delicious, and you have no idea what you're talking about. And so, um, you know, we enter into this thing where she proceeds to cross our arms and tell me, I'm not hungry. Um, and so we get into this argument. If you've never argued with a four-year-old, I highly recommend it. And so uh, it's real good for your soul. We get into this argument where I'm like, um, kind of feel personally slighted by the, her comment. And I get into this argument with her where I'm like, I know you're not hungry. And let me tell you why you're not hungry. Because you've been grazing and eating and snacking on junk food all day. That's why you're not hungry, because you've spoiled your appetite. And so for the record, we don't keep junk food stocked in our house. But we do like to buy candy and sweets that we dip into on the Sabbath. The problem is it doesn't matter how well we hide them, my kids find them. And so um, the, the, whenever this happens, when you, when you don't eat what's put in front of you, the rule in my house is if you don't eat what's on the table, then you, you what? You don't eat, right? Which, you know, Peach, my youngest daughter, just t- crosses her arms and says, that's fine, I'm not hungry. Every time, inevitably, as we're putting them into bed, guess what they say? I'm hungry, Dad, I'm hungry. I was like, well, I know you're hungry, honey. You didn't eat your dinner, right? Dad, but please get me a snack. Please, I just, I just want a snack. And, and what I tried to explain to my daughter but really cannot help her understand is that I could give you another snack, right, that may taste great, may tide you over, but the problem is you're going you're gonna to wake up tomorrow still hungry. And like Oreos and cheesy goldfish may taste great, but all it's really doing is numbing and spoiling like the, the ache and the appetite for what your body's truly hungry for, which is some real food. So, you know, all this other stuff doesn't have the sustenance, the substance, the nutrients to give you what your body needs and what it craves. So here's an Oreo. Don't tell your mom. Go to sleep, right? Go to sleep. And tomorrow you're going to wake up hungry. Now, um... The reason I bring you into my struggle as a parent is because God is actually using this to speak into my life and to teach me something profound about myself. Um, And particularly, God is trying to show me that there are two fundamental realities about me that also happen to be true about every single person in this room. Two fundamental realities that lie at the heart of every single human being that walks this planet. Um, And this is what I want to talk about this morning. So here's reality number one if you're taking notes. Reality number one is that to be human is to be hungry. In the words of the great prophet Bruce Springsteen, everybody's got a hungry heart. Everybody's got a hungry heart. And, and, and what the boss is talking about is he's not actually talking about food. He's talking about the same thing that David's talking about in Psalm 42 or Psalm 63 or what Solomon's getting at in Ecclesiastes when he said, God put eternity in your heart. There is at the bottom of the belly of all of your appetites, like a starving ache and a hunger and a longing for something in this world that is ultimate. Something that can fill up the emptiness that you carry around and make you whole and satisfy the ache and give you a sense of fullness and joy that your soul is starving for. And here's why you feel that. Here's what your hunger is trying to tell you. What it's trying to tell you is that you were made for God. 
And that's why, by the way, um, outside of God, it doesn't matter how much pleasure you pursue, how much stuff you consume, how much wealth you accrue. At the end of the day, if you're honest, you always wake up hungry. And you wake up to the reality that there's got, there has to be more than this. There has to be something more than this. Just think about this logically with me for a second. Uh, every desire you have has a corresponding pleasure to it that satisfies it. God created you with an appetite for food and drink and leisure and marriage and family and sex. And, and he gave you all those things to enjoy as, as corresponding pleasures that satisfy all those desires. But, but then there's this deeper thing, right? Like there's this deeper ache in you that those things can't seem to touch and those things can't seem to satisfy. And the deeper hunger and the deeper ache that you feel has a corresponding pleasure to it, and his name is Jesus. Paul says in Colossians 1, you were created by him, you were created for him. And so that's reality number one. To be human is to be hungry, and every human soul is starving for God. Now here's the second reality that brings us into the problem. The second reality is, like my daughter, we've all spoiled our appetite. There's a famous quote from C.S. Lewis that really puts this into perspective. So I'll put it on the screen for you. Here's what Lewis, the great Lewis says. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. And so like an ignorant child, we've got a few of those, who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. My daughter is far too easily pleased with the off-brand version of a Pop-Tart when she could enjoy the offer of delicious smoked meat. And here's Lewis's point. Lewis's point is that we have all settled for lesser pleasures. We've all looked to the gifts God has given us instead of the giver himself to satisfy us. Money, career, leisure, food, marriage, sex, again, all good, but not God. And that's the problem. The problem is that when you try to satisfy your appetite for God with good things instead of God himself, you always wake up hungry. And there's a sense of emptiness and an anxiety that you carry that will eat you alive. And it's devouring most people in our culture. In a lot of that reality, here's the question I want us to wrestle with this morning. Really simple. Okay, I'll put it on the screen. How do I redirect my hunger and point it in the right direction? Put another way, how do I cultivate a life of feasting on God? And if you're a disciple of Jesus, the short answer is through the spiritual disciplines, the core practices that Jesus taught and modeled for us. And if you're in this room and you're kind of tired of hearing us talk about the spiritual disciplines and you're like, is this just like some religious stuff that Jesus has called me to do? Um, think about the spiritual disciplines like, like dating. Like this is a way for you to cultivate space in the relationship where trust and intimacy can grow. Men in the room, side note, this sermon is for free. If you haven't read Justin Buzzard's Date Your Wife, Go home this afternoon, order on Amazon, read it, apply it, send me an email thanking my socks off, okay? So all he's talking about is if you want to build the relationship, you've got to create rhythms and habits in your marriage of dating your wife. You need to think about the spiritual disciplines like dating Jesus. It's a relationship, and like any relationship, it requires trust and it requires intentionality. 
And so particularly what Jesus wants us to see in this text is that there's an ancient spiritual discipline that we've lost touch with. That, that it's crucial for a life of feasting on God and, and discovering the joy that you were made for. And it's this core practice of fasting. Um, in her book on the spiritual disciplines, Adele Calhoun, I love her book on, on the disciplines. She says this about fasting. Fasting is how we learn to taste the difference between what truly nourishes the soul, the living bread and life-giving water, and that which is simply junk food. You want to learn how to actually taste and see that the Lord is good? Jesus gives us this discipline of fasting for that very purpose. That being said, look back with me at our text and let's listen to what Jesus says about fasting. So verse 16, Matthew chapter 6, here we go. Jesus says this, when you fast, I would underline that. Do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they've already received their reward. Verse 17, but when you fast, I would underline that, put oil on your head, wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. There's a lot that I want to say here, but first, notice Jesus assumes that all of his disciples will fast. Twice in this text, verse 16 and verse 17, Jesus says, when you fast, period, not if you fast. Here's what's crazy. If you go back up in chapter 6 of Matthew and you look at what Jesus is doing, he's putting uh, fasting as one of the three core practices that mark the life of a a disciple in his kingdom. You go back up, I'll put this on the screen. You go back up in chapter 6 and you look at verses 1 through 4. Jesus says, when you give. And he talks about the practice of giving, which we get. Then verses 5 through 15, he says, when you pray. And he teaches on prayer, which is probably our most favorite spiritual discipline. And then in our text, he says, when you fast. Isn't it interesting that the only time Jesus teaches explicitly on the spiritual disciplines, he mentions these three as at the core, giving, praying, fasting. The first two I'm cool with, the third one would not make it into my top three. And I'm guessing, I'm assuming that for most of you that's probably true. But for Jesus, it's clear that fasting is an essential way of life. Um, So essential, by the way, that this is how he prepares to kick off his ministry to save the world with a 40-day fast. And then this is a regular part of his life. We know for a fact that Jews in Jesus' day fasted twice a week on Mondays and Wednesdays. That's a practice that went way back into the Old Testament. Jesus would have certainly embodied that in his life. Um, There's a scene in John 4 where the disciples urge Jesus, Rabbi, you need to eat something. It's like, you're going to pass out. You need to eat. And Jesus looks at him and says, I have food that you know nothing about. And they are so confused. They're asking one another, like, who brought him food? Like, I don't understand this. And Jesus looks at them and says, no, you don't understand. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. And he's modeling for them and for us this practice of fasting. And as any rabbi would assume of his disciples, Jesus assumes that his followers will literally follow him in this way of life, that fasting would be a normal rhythm Um, in the life of a disciple of Jesus. That's why, by the way, you see this practice all over the scriptures and you read about it all over church history, how the early church continued this rhythm of fasting twice a week, except this is kind of funny. They moved it from Monday to Wednesday to Tuesday and Thursdays because they didn't want their fast to coincide with the Pharisees. 
Because as Jesus points out in our text, they were fasting for all the wrong reasons. But the point is, they continued this rhythm. And this rhythm lasted up until really just a couple centuries ago, when there was a radical shift in our culture that took place around the movements of the Enlightenment and then the Industrial Revolution. And John Wesley writes about this. Wesley is one of the most famous uh, leaders in church history. Uh, he was from uh, across the pond, from, from Britain. He moves to America in the 18th century as a pastor and a missionary. And Wesley writes this about fasting and what he's noticing in the church. He writes this around the, the middle of the 1700s. Here's the quote. Um, he says, I fear there are now thousands of Methodists, so-called, both in England and in Ireland, who following the same bad example have entirely left off fasting, who are so far from fasting twice a week, they don't even fast twice a month. What do you say about us? The man who, listen to this, the man who never fasts is no more in the way to heaven than the man who never prays. Now maybe you disagree with Wesley, maybe you think he's coming on a little too strong, but the point I'm trying to make is this. Up until quite recently in church history, fasting was thought of as one of the three core practices in the life of a disciple. And, and if you're a disciple of Jesus, he just assumes that this will be a part of a regular rhythm in your discipleship to him. Now, fast forward to today, and fasting sounds foreign at best, or unnecessary at best. At worst, it sounds crazy to us. It's so far out of step with our culture. We live in and we're being shaped by a culture of consumerism and instant gratification. Do what feels good. As long as it doesn't hurt anybody, go for it. Blessings to you. Pursue it. Give yourself to the worship of comfort and pleasure. And in that world where that stuff is growing, the idea of fasting instead of consuming just feels wrong to us. And so for the most part, this has become a lost practice in the modern Western church. And as pastors, we believe there's never better a time than now for us to uncover and rediscover this discipline of fasting. That being said, I just, here's what I want to do in the time we have left. Okay, I just want to ask three really simple questions and we'll be done. Okay, question number one, what is fasting? Question number two, what does fasting do? And then question number three, how do we do this? How do we incorporate this practice into our discipleship to Jesus? You guys with me? All right, you guys watching online with me? Well, you're answering for them, thank you. Um, all right, that last part was a joke. Let's go, what is fasting? Question number one, here we go. What is fasting exactly? And uh, to answer that, it's probably best first to talk about what fasting is not. So here's a few things. Fasting is not giving up something. Um, you might hear someone say, especially around the season of Lent, if you're familiar with the church calendar, that they're fasting from social media or from shopping or from chocolate or from coffee or whatever. And all that can be very good for your soul, tons of benefits, uh, help you learn self-control, help you form better habits that don't control you. All that's great, great. It's just not the same as fasting. I would argue fasting is harder than that. Number two, fasting is not a restricted diet. Um, there's all kinds of dieting trends right now, um, cleansing fasts and keto and, and intermittent fasting. All that can be really good for you, can be, can be lots of benefits, lots of benefits, but it's not biblical fasting. I don't think Jesus was fasting to get cut and clear up his skin so he could look good in front of the crowds, right? This is a different motivation for him. Lastly, okay, fasting is not the suppression of desire or the denial of pleasure, 
It is so important, if you're listening to this, that you understand this. In the ancient world, uh, there was this heresy that taught that pleasure is bad and our desires are bad. And nothing could be more unbiblical or more unchristian than that. The Bible teaches that God is the source of pleasure. He created pleasure. He gave us desires, and he gave us all this stuff to enjoy. And so fasting is not about the suppression of desire or the denial of pleasure. In fact, it's just the opposite. Fasting is about the intense pursuit of pleasure in the one place where treasure is ultimately found, where pleasure is ultimately found. It's the intense pursuit of desire and pleasure. So that being said, what is fasting then? Well, Here's a clear definition, okay? Stated simply, fasting is not eating food for the purpose of feasting on God. There's a lot of definitions out there. That's probably the simplest one I can give you. And there are a lot of different ways we see this done in the scriptures. Basically, fasting is you still take in liquids, um, but you don't eat food for a certain period of time. Could be half a day, could be a full day, could be multiple days. And the goal is to channel your hunger into prayer, and, and into eating and chewing on God's word, into drawing nourishment and life from his presence. And so again, the idea is fasting is you don't eat food in order to feast on God. And let me just state the obvious, that this is hard. Um, I'll be the first to admit that I don't have this mastered. Right now, I follow a rhythm of fasting once a week, typically on Wednesdays, and I love it and I hate it. I love it because it's like somebody reaches in and turns the volume of God up in my life. I get into this flow of prayer and fellowship with God, and then it's 10.45 a.m., <laughs> and uh, I haven't eaten breakfast, and lunch is around the corner, and I'm just angry, or hangry, I should say, right? And I remember the first time I ever tried to fast, I was just learning about this in Bible college. I, I didn't grow up in a culture that taught this, or I didn't know what this was. And so I was learning about it in my New Testament class. And I was like, I'm going to try this on. I'm going to do this. And I was trying to do it the holy way where you don't like announce to people that you're fasting. And so my friends, I'm at Williams Baptist College, you know, in Walnut Ridge. My friends come up to me and say, hey, man, uh, we're going to the China Star Super Buffet in Pocahontas for lunch. You in? And I'm like, Absolutely. Yeah. And I, just, I, I go right into my, like, using my gospel-centeredness to get myself out of this. And I'm like, I'm saved by grace, not by works, right? Bring on the general sows. Like, let's do this. And so I go and I crush it. 50 crab rangoons. I mean, unbelievable. Grace all day. Tastes so good. Um, and so the point is, this is hard. It's really hard. It's really hard. You're picking a fight with your gut. I would argue you're picking a fight with the devil. It is hard. But like anything in life that's worth doing, it's, it's, it's hard. Nothing worth doing comes easy. And there's a reason why we need to do this. Fasting does something in you. It does something to you and it does something through you. Which brings us to our next question, right? We've talked about what fasting is. What does fasting do? Why does it matter? Okay, three R's so it's easy to remember. Here we go, fasting. Number one, Fasting reveals our roots of dependence on other things. This one hurts. Uh, Richard Foster, another author on the spiritual disciplines, says this. More than any other discipline. Think about that. More than any other discipline. Fasting reveals the things that control us. This is a wonderful benefit to the true disciple who longs to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. 
We cover up what is inside us with food and other things. But in fasting, these things surface. And we can rejoice in this knowledge because we know that healing is available through the power of Christ. What Foster's getting at is that fasting surfaces our attachments, our trust structures, or the biblical word for it would be our idols. The things that we look to and lean on and put our hope and our trust in to help us cope with life and all the stuff that you feel and don't want to deal with and to give us a sense of security and stability and happiness that everybody's hungry for. And what's so tricky about this, as we've already said, is that most of the time these attachments are really good things. I don't think anybody, I've not found anybody who says this better than John Piper in his book on fasting, and it's a lengthy quote, but it's worth reading. So buckle up and just hang on to this quote. Hang on to every word. Here's what Piper says. The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that doles our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It's not the X-rated video but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it's a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife. Listen to this. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures on earth. And when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. God have mercy on us. He goes on and says this, Jesus said, some people hear the word of God and a desire for God is awakened in their hearts. But then, quote, as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares, the riches, and the pleasures of life. In another place, he said, the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. The pleasures of life and the desires for other things, these are not evil in themselves. These are not vices. These are gifts of God. They are your basic meat and potatoes and coffee and gardening and reading and decorating and traveling and investing and TV watching and internet surfing and shopping and exercising and collecting and talking. And all of them can become deadly substitutes for God. What our culture, listen, please listen to me. What our culture and what the enemy wants is for you to misplace your hunger for God with the gifts instead of the giver. And it is a subtle, dirty little trick because it kind of works. You, 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 try to, you pursue pleasure, you, you pursue joy and meaning and sex and food and screens and all this, all, this good, all this good stuff, and it gives you a snack, right? Like it gives you a taste of happiness, a little something to tide you over. And the problem is you're spoiling your appetite. And the fullness of those things is short-lived, and in the end, you always wake up hungry. And fasting, I don't know how it works, but fasting is this mechanism that reveals our attachments. 
It reveals those things and it just cuts through the smoke and it redirects your hunger and sets it on the, the object that it's truly thirsty and hungry for, which is God himself, who, guess what, sets us free from having to be in bondage to all those other things for our happiness. And that really brings me to the second R, okay? So fasting uh, reveals our attachments. Fasting reorders our desires. It reorders our desires. Again, I want to be clear here. It's not wrong to have desires. You just need to have your desires recalibrated and reordered. If you, for example, desire and love, uh, you know, your job and your hobby more than your spouse and your kids, that's your loves are out of whack and you need to have them reordered. This is especially true when it comes to our relationship with God. And fasting has a way of getting into the core of you and just reshaping your loves to love God more than anything else. And the crazy thing about it, what's weird, it uses your body to do this. It partners with your body. Biblical scholar Scott McKnight calls fasting body talk. It's a way of, um, of communicating to yourself and to God with your body. And his point is, you don't eat food and you let the physical ache in your gut preach the truth to you that your deepest desire is for God alone. And it just kind of reorders all the other competing desires. John Mark Comer um, says it like this. He says, your strongest desires are not your deepest desires. Think about that. What he's saying is that in the moment, your strongest desires might be to lust or to spend or to binge or to look at porn or to check out or cheat to get ahead or, or whatever. But deeper than those desires, underneath those, those desires, what your soul really wants is God. It's like, it's like there's the part of you in your soul that's still imprinted with God's image, and it's like that part of you remembers, even if you don't. It's like that part of you remembers, oh man, there's something I'm, there's something I'm made for, there's something I'm aching for. And fasting is a way of reminding yourself and preaching to yourself that it's God alone. It's God alone. There's this arresting quote from G.K. Chesterton that is haunting. He says this, Every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. What he's saying is, I know what you want when you go to a brothel. But what you really want, you won't find here. God alone can give it to you. Your strongest desires are not your deepest desires. And what this is getting at is there's a competition at work. There's, there's, there's an internal war between what the Bible calls the flesh and the spirit. The flesh is the part of you that actually wants to be driven and controlled by your desires for pleasure. It, it wants to attach to uh, things that aren't God and, and replace God with those things. But when you trust in Jesus, he puts his spirit in you who gives you a new heart that now wants God above all else and it wants what God wants. And fasting is a way of reordering your desires because what fasting does is it starves the flesh in order to feed on the spirit. It creates a space in your life for a fresh indwelling of the Spirit. Like, it, it opens you up for the Spirit to come in and nurture this love for Jesus and, and replace this other things with this love for Jesus so that your whole life gets reordered. All your longings get reordered around God and His holy purposes for your life. And fasting, just, it just works like that. It, it has this way of, of, of re, re, revealing your attachments and reordering your desires. Um, lastly, thirdly, 
Here's what fasting does. Reveals your attachments, reorders your desires, and it releases the power of God in your life. Again, I'm not, I'm not quite sure how it works or why it's set up this way, but fasting is some kind of gateway into intimacy and the power of God breaking into your life. John Tyson, who's a pastor and author, says it like this. There's some kind of intensity in combining fasting with prayer that gets us above the fray of normal prayer where connections happen in the spirit. And that releases a different kind of breakthrough in our lives. And here's the point. Some of the breakthroughs that you want to see in your life, you want to see in your family, that we want to see in our church and our city, will only come after a season of fasting and praying. Some things will not be released apart from fasting and praying. And don't take that from me. That's what Jesus said. You've got this scene in the Gospels where the disciples are trying to cast this demon out of this boy, and they can't do it. And they come to Jesus and they complain. Why is this not working? We've done this before. We're, we're applying all the same, all the right techniques. And like, we can't get this to work. And Jesus looks at him and says, well, this kind only comes out with prayer and fasting. And Jesus' point is that there is a level of supernatural power and opposition that without fasting and praying will not be broken through. It will not be broken through. And a lot of people have written about this. Pete Gregg, who's leading our prayer course, he says, prayer and fasting is the weapon we must pick up if we are to overcome the assignments of the enemy against our lives and be free to progress into deeper realms of the spirit. Or I love this quote from St. Theophan, a 19th century priest and theologian, who said, quote, the demons can sense a faster and a man of prayer from a distance, and they run far away from him so as to avoid a painful blow. Fasting is one of the greatest weapons for breaking down the power of sin and hurt and strongholds in your life and in our culture at large. And to be clear, by the way, um, the power is not in the practice. The power is in the presence. And the practice of prayer is like a portal into the presence of God. And again, I'm not sure how it works, but it's just one of those doors that if you don't open it and go through it, you don't get what's on the other side of it. And so in summary, what does fasting do? Fasting reveals our attachments, reorders our desires, and releases the power of God in our lives. And on behalf of the pastors, I, I just want to encourage you to just experiment with fasting this week. I'd like to encourage you just to put your toe in the water and then maybe work this up into being like a regular part of your rhythm and your discipleship to Jesus. Um, Jesus is not, let me, let me say this, Jesus is not going to love you anymore if you don't do it or love you any le- or if you do do it. He's not going to love you any less if you don't. But I, I do believe, I truly believe God has something for you that you probably won't be able to access apart from this practice, outside of this practice. And so that brings us to our last question, right? How do we do this? How do we do this? Um, first, real quick, Jesus tells us how not to do it. And I'll be quick here. Verse 16, Jesus says, when you fast, don't do it like the Pharisees who fast to be seen by others, right? So they walk around sad. They disconfigure their face to get attention. Um, they make themselves not recognizable to be recognized. And, and so that's because they find their joy and, and identity in the adoration and approval of others. And Jesus says, instead of that, in verse 17, when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face. So in other words, take a shower, groom yourself, maybe put some product in your hair, like 
take care of yourself and, and let the eyes of your heart when you're fasting be aimed at God and not at man. And to be clear, there's nothing wrong with people knowing that you're fasting. It's just that there's a big difference between being seen fasting and fasting to be seen. Nothing wrong with being seen fasting. If you're at work and you're not eating and people are like, why are you not eating? It's perfectly fine to go. You don't have to be, you don't have to lie. (laughs) I'm just not hungry. No, you're starving, right? But you're fasting. So there's nothing wrong with being seen fasting, but it's fasting to be seen that is the posture that Jesus condemns. So that's your posture. Now, practically, here are some simple guidelines, again, from Adele Calhoun on how to fast. Here's what she says. I'm going to run through these bullet points. Number one, don't fast when you're pregnant, nursing, or have certain health issues. You might want to consult your doctor before you fast. Don't fast if you're hungry and are fasting for immediate results. Newsflash, fasting is not magic. Okay, thank you, Adele. Stay hydrated. Always drink plenty of water and fluids. If you're new to fasting, begin by fasting for one meal. Just skip one meal. You can also fast sun up to sundown by skipping breakfast and lunch. Then you break your fast at dinner. Here's the point. When you do it, spend the time with God that you would normally be eating. When you're hungry throughout the day, let it prompt you to pray and look to Jesus. I love this. Sit with Jesus in the wilderness and feed on the bread from heaven. Channel that hunger into prayer and communion with God throughout your day. Work your way up to longer fasts. Don't break your fast. How's this for practical? Don't break your fast with a huge meal. Eat small portions of food, and the longer you fast, the more you need to break the fast gently. And if you want those guidelines, you can either save them on version, or if you don't have version, you email me, adam at crossingparagol.com. I'd be happy to email those to you. Here's, here's what I want to do to close. Let me, let me read this quote. I want to read this quote from James K. E. Smith. He's a Christian. He's a philosopher. I'll put this on the screen. We'll end on meditating on this quote from Smith. He says this, Discipleship, or following Jesus, is more of a matter of hungering and thirsting than it is knowing and believing. You know what his point is? I find this really comforting. God is not looking for people who have perfect faith. God is not looking for people who have airtight, perfect theology, who know, all, who know everything, who have all the answers. The Pharisees had all that. All that God is looking for are people who are hungry. When Jesus is looking for his disciples to call people to follow him, you know what he's looking for? The one like little tiny ingredient that he's looking for in people, not have they, have they lived a great life? Is this a person with a lot of talents and gifts that I could really use for the kingdom? Have they done, have, are they too broken? Have they done too much wrong? Have they been to seminary? How long have they been a church attender? Forget all that. Jesus is looking for one thing and one thing only. Are you hungry? Are you hungry? That's what Jesus is looking for. And as pastors, we are, we are so, we have such a strong conviction that in order for us to move forward and flourish and be the church God's called us to be and actually not miss out on what God is up to in you and in the world around us, more than ever, we have to be a church that's hungry. No more spiritual apathy. No more consumerism. But God, make us a church that's marked by this holy hunger for you and for your kingdom to come and your will to be done in us and in our city as it is in heaven. God, make us hungry. 
God, we are hungry. Wake us up to what it is we're hungry for. I'm going to go ahead and invite the band to come forward. And as we do, as they come, don't, don't, let, me, don't let me lose you here. I, I want to invite you just to wrestle with one question, okay, as the band comes forward. The question I want to invite you to wrestle with is quite simply, am I hungry or have I been lulled to sleep by the good pleasures of this world? Some of you have bought into the lie of consumerism. And you're stuffing your life with, with all this stuff that will never satisfy you. And the reality is you're starving your soul. And even if you're in this room or you're watching and you disagree with me, if you're intellectually and emotionally honest for just a moment, you can feel it. You can feel it. There's, there's an ache, there's a hunger, there's, there's a desire that nothing in this world can seem to satisfy. And the only logical conclusion is that you were made for something else. A different kind of corresponding pleasure. And so for all of us, really, the invitation is the same. Stop relying on things that are good but not God. And look to Jesus, the bread of life, the living water, and arrange your life around around feasting on him and drinking from him. And Jesus says, if you do that, you'll never hunger and you'll never thirst again. Which is Jesus' way of saying, you'll find the fullness and the wholeness and the joy that you've been searching for your entire life and that you were made for. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, pray that you would take this word and you would crack open the calluses on our hearts, uh, crack, break through the, the kind of dull comforts that we have used to numb our appetite for you. Give us a taste of what it is we're really longing for, which is your love in Christ. Make us a people who are hungry. Save us, God. Satisfy us. Ask these things in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.